0: Good morning, morning. my sermon text this morning is Jonah chapter 1 verses 4 through 16, but since I only covered verses 1 through 3 last week, I thought I would go ahead and read all 16 verses. Please give your attention to the Word of God. Now the Word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Therefore they cried out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this invitation to come and to sit at the feet of Jesus and to be instructed. We know that all the scriptures testify to the gospel of your Son, and so we ask that he would once again be displayed here, that he would be magnified during our time of meditation. Father, open up your word so that we can see what's plain here, but do give us eyes to see it. Open up our ears as well so that we may be a receptive people. And most importantly, we ask that you would open our hearts to receive your instruction and even apply it. Give us pliable hearts, Lord. Refresh us also, for we do seek to enter your rest during this hour. Encourage us by your grace, we pray. Thank you for hearing our prayer through the majestic name of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Sometimes people do not always live up to their confession of faith by demonstrating that they truly fear the Lord. And sadly, I think that Ravi Zacharias was one such man. I don't know if you know Ravi Zacharias. Uh, He died just a few years ago in 2020. He was uh, by birth an Indian. He grew up in Delhi, but he grew up in a Christian home to Anglican parents. However, as a teenager, he was a skeptic. He did not believe the claims of Christianity and he was also during this time, he was very depressed and at one point he tried to kill himself. Because of that, he went to the hospital and as he laid in the hospital recovering, he took up reading the Bible and he accepted the word of God. He believed the claims of Christianity, he gave his life to Christ and he took vows to serve the Lord in whatever way the Lord saw fit. Well, over time, Zechariah became one of the most influential um, evangelical figures of our time. He was a a deep thinker. He was a very charismatic speaker. I think Pastor Jeffrey had the opportunity to hear him once. He was a a powerful evangelist. Some might even call him a prophet. He was certainly um, an apologist, a Christian apologist who had many high-profile opportunities to speak to large crowds. Not only this, but he was also a prolific writer. He authored more than 30 books. Maybe some of you have some of his books on your shelves. So all indications were that Ravi Zacharias feared the Lord. But just three years after his ministry, after his death, um, his ministry has been, well, it's been downsized. Really, it's been shuttered. And his books are no longer going to be reprinted. Why is that? Well, a few months after his death, it was discovered that he was, in fact, again, sadly, a sexual predator. Apparently, all the wealth and the privilege and the opportunities that he had, those tempted Zacharias, and he enjoyed going to massage parlors. He even opened up one of his own, if you can imagine. Uh, He would ask, of course, women to commit lewd sexual acts there, and he was a married man, he had some affairs, On the side but maybe most uh, horrible uh, he would manipulate women he would gain their trust and then they would open up to him and then he would uh, counsel them in their need but really what he was after was getting them into bed you know to a world that's watching that kind of behavior is of course scandalous it doesn't matter that Zechariah confessed his fear in the one true God his actions spoke louder than his words didn't they Now, to be honest, I don't know if Zechariah was a true Christian. I I go so far as to say that I I believe he believed the things that he confessed about Christ. But he didn't prove his faith with his works. He didn't demonstrate that he feared God so so that his faith was shown to be true. Christianity is, of course, it's, it's more than just a good confession. It is that, right? If we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead, we'll be saved. But a true believer demonstrates holy fear in the Lord by His actions. Do we fear the Lord? Do you fear the Lord? Because if you do, it will be manifest in your faith. Fear was a major theme in our passage this morning, especially in those verses 4 through 16. Notice, for instance, that throughout the account, the sailors were afraid. And their fear, it just seems to be increasing as we go along. In verse 5, it says that the mariners were understandably afraid when the storm came up on the sea. And then in verse 10, after Jonah confesses what he's done, what are they? They're exceedingly afraid. And then in verse 16, once the Lord's calmed the storm, it says, The men feared the Lord exceedingly. You know, for effect, the Hebrew there can be rendered, they feared a great fear. The author of Jonah is just trying to ratchet it up another notch. Isn't that interesting that they they feared the Lord the most after he showed them his grace? We'll come back to that. Likewise, Jonah is said to possess fear. His confession, which appears right there in the middle of the passage, at least between verses 4 and 16 and verse 9, he says, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. So we see that fear is mentioned often here. But whereas one man's fear is suspect, the fear of the sailors seems to be genuine. It seems to be true, doesn't it? This morning, what I'd like us to do is to Contrast these two so called fears by putting them side by side. First, we're going to look at the prophet's uh, fake fear, his confession that he fears the Lord. And then we'll look at the sailors. And I hope that what we'll see by looking at the sailors is that they truly did fear the Lord, as it was evidenced by a growing faith that God was working in them. So, first of all, we see that Jonah did not fear the Lord. In verse 9, Jonah says he fears Yahweh, but his his actions uh, show us that his fear isn't sincere. How do, how do we see that? Well, I deduce it by the fact that Jonah was first of all sleeping. Then he was also very silent. And finally, I believe he was even suicidal. First notice, he, notice he's sleeping. In verse 5, it says, Jonah, he's gone down into the inner parts of the ship where he's now fast asleep. You know, last week I mentioned that there was this repetition of the refrain going down. In Hebrew, it's yarad, right? He went down, yarad, to Joppa, then went down, yarad, into the ship and now goes down to sleep. It doesn't say down there, but there is a play on words. Yaradam, right? Yarad, yaradam. See, the sleep is meant to be seen as a part of his descent, his descent into sin and death. And even Sheol, which is where he's headed unless the Lord intervenes. And as you know the story, the Lord is going to continue to intervene because we have that type of Lord. Sleep is also a picture of comfort, isn't it? Of not taking God's call seriously. And we recall the comfort that Jonah enjoyed that he experienced in Israel before he was called to Nineveh. He had probably grown very complacent. With that call to bear the message of let's make Israel great again, right? The last thing he wanted to do was hear arise, go, call out. Call out to some undeserving pagans that he hated. He just wanted to run away from God. He wanted to shut the world out. He wanted to go to sleep. And yet, what do we hear once again, this time from the lips of the captain? Arise, call out. Right? That must have sounded like a bad dream to Jonah. He's just trying to escape God's great commission. And God had said, arise, go, call out. And now he's sending others with the same message. God's pursuing Jonah. He's pursuing him. last week, we saw that Jonah refused God's great commission. But the Lord... That's how our passage beginning in verse 4 began this morning. But the Lord... The Lord, who is rich in mercy, he pursues Jonah. He's giving his prophet a second chance and even new opportunities, isn't he? This time among a completely different set of pagans, international sailors. (laughs) Think of what they would have been like, right? But he's giving him this opportunity to testify to his glory and his grace. But instead of speaking, Jonah is silent. First, he's silent in prayer. I mean, notice that all these uncultured, uncouth sailors, they're all crying out to their gods. But there's not the slightest indication that Jonah speaks a single word to Yahweh for salvation. He's certainly not going to intercede for these sailors. You know, isn't that the way it is with us when we think about it? When we get mired in sin, what do we do? We clam up, we stop talking to the Lord. But you know what the good news is? God doesn't stop pursuing us. (laughs) The invitation stands. Arise, cry out. And I hope that's of great encouragement to you. You see, God doesn't call us to get our act together before we come to him in prayer. Yes, he does want us to repent, truly repent. Yes, he does want us to put away sin. But the call to repentance is an invitation to bring our confession to the Lord, And then receive his gracious pardon. And then walk in newness of life. Don't be silent before God. If you are caught in sin. Arise, cry out. If you hear his call today, take hold of that. Unfortunately, Jonah was so hard of heart, at least in this moment, that he he did not speak to the Lord. But not only is Jonah silent in prayer, he's also very reluctant to confess his faith, any truth with the sailors. There seems to be very much an economy of words here. They they seem to have to drag everything out of him. The sailors ask Jonah several questions, don't they? But with regard to a few of those questions, he seems silent. Beginning in verse 8, they ask him, Well, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? Of what people are you? You know, with regard to those last three questions where do you come from? What's your country? What people are you? I think those are kind of related, right? And he does seem to answer that question, but he sums it up with one word I'm a Hebrew. A Hebrew, that would have been the word the Israelites used to distinguish themselves from the nations. And it almost sounds proud on his lips, doesn't it? I'm a Hebrew. It reminds me of the way Paul described his identity prior to his conversion, right? When he, had, when he said he had put confidence in the flesh, you know the words he used to the Philippians? He says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Of course, he wasn't bragging. He was simply bragging in the Lord, but he was reminiscing about how he used to take confidence in the flesh. But that's the way Jonah speaks. I'm a Hebrew. And that's about all he's willing to share initially. Of course eventually he does provide some more answers reluctantly it's kind of brought out of him he has to be found out which is again the way we normally are when we're mired in our sins but finally he admits that he's the reason why this storm has come upon them but you know the one the one question he never seems to answer at least explicitly is what his occupation is he won't tell them he's a prophet and why is that I think essentially he's decided I don't want to be a prophet anymore. I'm re- I'm tendering my resignation. So he's sleeping, he's silent, and then also I believe he's suicidal. Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, he says, and the sea will quiet down for you. What do you think of that? Does that sound a little bit noble? Is Jonah finally saying, you know, I take full responsibility for my actions, which is, you know, know, it's what everybody says nowadays, right? Is he even offering a vicarious sacrifice for the salvation of these men? Should we see a picture of Christ here? Yeah, maybe, right? But this would be a really poor man's Christ. I mean, Jonah's more of an antichrist than a Christ. Even so, I do believe that there's propitiation here. There is a quelling, a satisfaction of God's wrath, right? Let you just hold on to that. We'll also return to that as well. In any case, while it's possible that Jonah is a kind of sacrifice, I think it's more significant that he's being suicidal in this moment. And the reason I think he's suicidal is that again, if we peek ahead to the end of the book, take a little thunder away from the future, right? After the Ninevites repent. What do we see Jonah saying? Take my life, Lord. It would be better for me to die than to go on living. So if he was suicidal then, well then, right? Leopards don't change their spots so easily. Jonah's no hero, is he? He says he fears God, but his actions contradict the confession of faith that he makes. You know, this book would not be so flattering to God's covenant people. The Israelites confessed one thing before a watching world, but they really did another. Which is why Paul, channeling his his Ezekiel, was able to say to them, God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Says that in Romans 2. You think you're a light for those who are walking in darkness? No, no way. That's the problem with scandalous Christianity, isn't it? If we don't behave any better than the world... Within well, then our confession of faith is just meaningless. All day long, like Jonah, we could say, hey, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I fear the one true God who made the heavens and the earth, but that's not going to be powerful, right? It's really going to be meaningless if our faith is not accompanied by true fear. Well, we looked at Jonah's fake fear. Let's, let's turn now to the fear of the sailors. Let's see how it compares to Jonah's fear. How how do the sailors demonstrate real fear and even a burgeoning faith? Well, first, they're fervent in prayer. (laughs) Yeah, I, I know that they're praying to all their different gods, right? But I think it's understandable. These polytheistic sailors, they would have come from all over. They would have just met, as sailors do in port, right? They would have met... In Joppa, but they come from different nationalities and different faiths, and they bring with them their national gods. If you think about it, our country has become a little bit like that. We've become certainly more polytheistic over the last few decades, and I think that's a tremendous opportunity. The Lord has brought to us, to our doorstep, many different faiths. And I think it's fair to commend the sailors for praying, even if they are ignorant. It doesn't mean that we're happy with polytheism, right? Or that we want to affirm some sort of universalism. But consider the fact that when the Apostle Paul traveled through Athens, right? And he saw all those idols set up, with one even being to the unknown God, right? He was distressed about that. He certainly wasn't silent. But he didn't condemn them for that either. On the contrary, he commended them for being religious in every way before them proceeding to declare to them the true God, the God who made the world and everything in it, who's not like idols, who can't be manipulated, and who's calling men everywhere to repent. He was very opportunistic. Paul even declared to them the man that God appointed to judge the whole world and declared to them that authority based on the action of him raising from the dead. Paul used the occasion of polytheistic worship to proclaim the mercies of God in Christ. So the sailors' prayers, I think, should be seen as an act of fear. If not, just a little seed of faith. Whoever draws near to God must believe that he exists, right? And that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Then also the sailors demonstrate holy fear and an incrementally growing faith in the fact that they apprehend the nature of sin. Did you see that? Twice, both in verses 7 as well as verse 8. They say they want to know on whose account this evil has come upon us. They don't have to be convinced that a deity has taken notice of sin and is offended, right? And when Jonah is finally found out, what do they say? How do they react? What is this you've done? Does that sound familiar? What is this you have done? It's the exact same Hebrew that we find in Genesis 3 where God comes looking for Adam after he's rebelled. These men are praying, they're taking sin seriously, and they're open to God's revelation. In verse 7, it says that they cast lots to receive a divine sign of culpability. Now, we may look at this, we might be tempted to think this is witchcraft or the like, right? And certainly, if we were to roll the dice today or consult a Ouija board or what have you, that would be considered sorcery. But that's because God has spoken to us he spoke to us in the past, many times, various ways, through the prophets in these last days. He's spoken to us by his Son, who is the image of the invisible God, right? We don't lack anything, so we have no excuse. But we do see in the Old Testament, when there was no prophet speaking for God. <clears throat> Hello, paging Jonah, right? We could use a little prophecy here. We could use a little revelation from the one true God, but when there is no revelation that the Israelites themselves, they would consult the Urim and the Thummim, like stones, like dice, if you will. That was basically Cantoned claromancy, divination, by casting lots. And so I think they are to be commended for attempting to find out the source of sin and the source of the disaster that's come upon them. And then also, just notice how in verse 8, they simply say, tell us. They want to know. Tell us, Jonah. They have ears to hear. They'll take anything to heart that he tells them to do. I guess almost anything, right? <laughs> because Jonah does tell them to throw them overboard, but what do they do instead? Well, they dig, dig in their heels and they row all the harder, trying to get back to shore, trying to save themselves. But that is not going to save them. That isn't the way God operates. He doesn't say, try harder. He also doesn't say, okay, well, now that I have your attention, I'm like all your other gods, right? I just wanted your attention, just wanted your recognition. You can manipulate me how you, how you will, right? I'll let it go. No, that's not our God. Sin must be dealt with. It must be dealt with through sacrifice. God will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And here is, I think, where we see a picture of propitiation. An appeasement of God's wrath via sacrifice is required. And so Jonah goes overboard. Jonah must die. The sailors, they begin to realize this. But they aren't really confident in that solution. And so again here, I think that they're to be commended for their fear. Prior to throwing Jonah overboard, they pray to Yahweh. Yahweh. By the way, how significant is it that they are praying to Yahweh now, right? Do you see that? They're not praying to their other gods anymore. Has God granted them the gift of faith? We'll see. They pray, Yahweh, you've done as it pleased you. That is, we submit to your sovereign will. We may not understand everything that you're doing, but we submit to you, and then also lay not on us innocent blood. See, they're essentially asking for forgiveness before they even do what they're about to do. Contrast the fear that these sailors demonstrate with the brazen statement that the Jews made when Pilate was trying to wash his hands of Jesus. You remember that scene? right? He was saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood, and he was washing his hands. No, he wasn't. But what he did was one-upped by the Jews who said, his blood be on us and on our children. Wow. The sailors aren't like that. In every way, the sailors have demonstrated that they fear the Lord. They sought him in prayer. They've taken sin seriously. They looked for guidance. And now they're relying on God's provision and asking him for pardon. Sounds like a Christian, doesn't it? <laughs> their fear has manifested their faith. Finally, and I think this is really so significant. So significant that it comes after the Lord has delivered them from the storm. It says that the men feared the Lord exceedingly. Again, it's that exaggerated Hebrew. They feared a great fear. The point is their fear has just grown. It's been magnified. They were afraid of the storm. Then they were more afraid when Jonah confessed his culpability. But now they're exceedingly fearful of the one who has stilled the storm. They must wonder who this is who can still the, the wind and the waves. Many centuries later, another group of sailors was out on a sea, right? A great storm came up, and amid that storm, another Jew was lying in the boat, fast asleep. And the sailors came up to him and they said, Wake up! Don't you care that we're perishing? But on that occasion, Jesus awoke. And he rebuked the wind and the waves. Peace, be still. And immediately the storm ceased. And you know what it says? It's Mark 4 if you want to look it up later. It's in all the synoptics, but I'm looking at Mark 4 in particular. But it says that those sailors were filled with a great fear. Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? You see, God's salvation makes us fear Him. That's a sign of true faith. What did we sing earlier today? "Amazing Grace," those so familiar words, right? We sang, "Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." Grace taught my heart to fear. Grace, my fear is relieved, yeah, but grace taught my heart to fear. These words, they were penned by another former sailor who himself eventually became an Anglican minister, became one of the most influential evangelical figures in modern history, and it wasn't Ravi Zacharias. May God truly have mercy upon his soul. It was John Newton. Newton was a sailor, and he was a slave trader. He was a cruel man. And on one of his journeys, he found himself caught in a terrible storm, and in his fear and distress, he called upon the Lord for salvation, and God had mercy upon him. He delivered him out of that storm, and Newton became a Christian. Actually, the story's a little more complicated uh, than that. He went on for slave trading for a while, right? Before he matured in his faith and really feared the Lord, sometimes we just have to be patient with those that the Lord is calling to true faith. But in time, Newton understood that God saved a wretch like me. He wasn't writing in some dispassionate, disconnected way. When he penned, I once was lost, but now am found. I'm found. Bl- I was blind, but now I see. And it meant something to him. When he wrote those words, Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. You see, when we apprehend who it, who it was that we w- were when God called us, we were God's enemies. And when we understand the depths to which God traveled in order to save us, he sent his only son, right? Then we will fear the Lord exceedingly, and we will worship him like the sailors did, and we will make vows to him. Newton became not only an Anglican minister, but a leading abolitionist of the slave trade in England, because God worked in him a love for those he formerly hated, for ignorant pagans, right? He now had a deep compassion For those, he knew that the Lord was calling to salvation. If God can do that with John Newton, I think he can do it with Jonah. He can certainly do it with us. Let's pray together. Gracious Lord, uh, we ask that you would give us humility. Help us to see that we're not really that different from Jonah. Take away the confession of our lips that we are proud Hebrews, proud Christians, especially if our faith does not always show that we fear you. Give us instead a confession that affirms that we're simply wretches who are saved by your amazing grace. Father, we ask that you would give us a desire to cry out to you in repentance, and then we ask that you would use us for your service. Give us a heart of compassion for those who are perishing, but those who you are drawing near. And above all, we ask that you would make us a people who fear you at all times and exceedingly. May others take note of that fear as they come into contact with us and become worshipers of the one true God. Even worshipers of Jesus, the God who stilled the storm. And we pray in his name. Amen.